This morning's reading comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things I miss uh, about being a father of young children. Uh, but one that might seem, oh, sort of trivial, is I actually miss playing hide-and-seek. I do. I, I always thought it was a delight when uh, the little ones didn't quite get it yet. Remember that? And they thought hiding meant closing their eyes, so if they couldn't see you, you couldn't see them. But I think probably the thing that delighted me the most, uh, and it just shows how self-centered I am, I guess, was... <laughs> Being able to hide and my children not finding me, that was just, that was a delight. Um, I could always find them. They were never very good at it, but I could hide. And you know one of the things I did when I hid that I liked the most? I hid right out in the open, right? In the most obvious of places where if you'd really been looking, you would have seen me. But they were playing hide and seek 
And they were looking everywhere except the obvious place. And there I would be. That, that was just fun to me. Um, but I think there's a parallel there, too, uh, really, to life. Because I think it's fascinating how so many of us um, are looking for something, right? And it's right there in front of us. Just like my children in the game of hide-and-go-seek. I, I remember a TV show, it ended in 2014. Um, and it was based on basically an idea that a lot of TV shows are based on. This one, the TV show was named Psych. And there were two characters in it. Didn't anybody ever watch that show? Um, Two characters, main characters in it, and one was Sean, and the other was Gus, and they played off of each other really well. But Sean was the guy who was supposedly a psychic, right? And they were kind of like, oh, they weren't really detectives, but they played like ones, and they helped the police department out all the time. Well, Sean was uh, posing always as a psychic, you know, and he would do things to make you think he understood things you didn't understand. But the reality of the show was completely consistent, which is probably why it didn't last very long, because there was only one major theme, and that was Sean would see things that nobody else saw. He He would just spot something at a crime scene, or he would spot something in a person who happened to be the perpetrator of the crime that attached that person somehow to another crime. Sean was just good at seeing things, right? And he would solve cases that way. He saw what was obvious, but what was unseen. And today we have a story that's very similar to that. Can you imagine how many people were at the temple that day? But according to our record... There were only two who saw the invisible deity, the one and only of the Father. Only two. Everybody else just missed it. It was a baby. And there were lots of babies. It's like there are around here. Seems like we're dedicating one every other week. Babies, babies, babies at the temple for dedication, purification, right after circumcision. But that one, Simeon saw, and Anna saw. And when they saw that one, they saw the invisible deity. But before we ask a question concerning their life and how they identified this invisible deity and how that relates to our lives, let's remember the background of the story. Let's start at the beginning. The story begins with Mary and Joseph, and Mary and Joseph are doing what is called for by the law, that is to take Jesus after he'd been circumcised, which was also part of the law, to the temple to be dedicated, and part of it was a purification uh, rite that they were going through. may have had something to do, among other things, with the purification of someone who went through a birth process, because that was required by the law as well. That could have included certainly Mary, but the child and maybe even the father in some way. But they were following what was prescribed by the law. As a matter of fact, at the early stage of our window into the one and only of the father, what we notice is that the parents were following the pattern of every other human being that they lived around in the Jewish community. 
Yes, Jesus was special, and Mary seemed to know that more than anybody else. So did Joseph, but Mary seems to be especially keen on this. But they set a pattern. He was circumcised. He was dedicated. Later, of course, by his own decision, he was baptized. Does the invisible deity really need purification? No. Does the invisible deity, the one and only of the Father, really need a baptism for the remission of sins, which is what John was calling for? No. But Jesus steps into the flow of human history, fully God and fully man, and participates in purifications and these sacraments of the Jewish faith. And as a matter of fact, he became early on very normal, like everyone else. And Mary would see this normality, this child who grew up like every other child, who had aches and pains and falls and sickness like every other child, who as he grew experienced significant persecution, perhaps more than others, and who experienced all of life and experienced death. The one and only from the Father was very normal. He was the invisible deity of God. So that's the background on Mary and Joseph coming to the temple on that day. But then, of course, there's two characters who enter the temple scene, and you, you see them immediately. First is Simeon. He was a devoted follower of Yahweh, a devout Jewish believer. And because of that, he was looking for the Messiah. I, I should pause to say this. Um, I think probably in our Christian culture, we, not intentionally, but we often forget the weight of the Jewish tradition that ushered in the existence of Jesus. We just see Jesus becoming Man, in the person of the second person of the Trinity, becoming man, offering salvation to the whole world, and us being a part of that wonderful history. But we forget this. They were looking for the Messiah. They were anticipating the Messiah. It might have been a surprise to someone that this was the Messiah, but it wouldn't have been a surprise to anyone who was a devout Jew that the Messiah was coming. The consolation of Israel is on the horizon somewhere. We're looking every day for him. So it's with that anticipation that Simeon goes to the temple as he did day after day. But on this particular occasion, it seems that he was prompted especially to go to the temple by the Spirit of God. And when he arrived at the temple on that day, it appears that he immediately recognized the Messiah. Again, it would really be strange if Mary and Joseph were the only parents with a young child on that day. This was a teeming city of devoted Jewish followers of Yahweh. And he looked and saw Mary and Joseph and by the Spirit of God identified Messiah. And then he made some declarations concerning Messiah. First, he took the child into his arms and he blessed him. And then he made declarations concerning the child and concerning 
his parents. He also said when he was finished with his declaration, I, I love this phrase, um, Lord, you have done what you promised. You let me see the Messiah of God. Now dismiss me in peace. Lord, I'm ready to go. My work here is done. The promise has been seen. Take me home. One reason uh, that, that that particular phrase is special to me is because uh, on the day that my father passed away, he had preached Sunday morning. Uh, I got a recording of that message. And as a part of that message, he quoted this passage. Almost as though he was standing in Simeon's shoes. Lord, I fulfilled my commission. Dismiss your servant in peace. What a wonderful exit. We don't know when Simeon passed away, but we do know he was ready. But about the prophecy of Simeon, Simeon said to Mary and Joseph, this baby is going to cause the rising and the falling of many. In other words, this baby is going to walk into our world and he's going to divide it. You're going to have people who are on one side and people who are on another. You're going to have people who were up high in exalted positions that are going to be debased. And those that were low who are going to be exalted. Can you hear the teachings of Jesus in all of this? That's what's going to happen, said Simeon. But then he said something else. Mary. Imagine Mary's consternation. You will be pierced with a sword to your very soul because of this child. I visited a lot of uh, babies and families in the hospital just following a birth. And I can't imagine walking into the room and telling the mother, this child is going to pierce your soul. Doesn't seem like the time for it, does it? There's some extent to which that's always true, right? <laughs> that kid's going to pierce your soul a little bit. But this is a prophetic revelation concerning Jesus Christ to Mary. Mary, I want you to understand that what you're about to experience as the mother of this child is unprecedented. And as a matter of fact, she did experience it, I think, more than anybody on the earth. I... I don't want to single you out as mothers, but at that risk I will. There's a special bond. It's, it's your flesh. You carried it for nine months. You nursed it so that it could grow. It's you, even more than it is for me as a father. And that child, says Simeon, that child... It's going to pierce your soul. And the experiences of her life with Jesus did pierce her soul. Joseph wasn't there when Jesus was on the cross. It was Mary at the foot of the cross. We don't know when Joseph died, but it seemed to have been quite early in the life of Jesus. It was Mary who watched him grow, who watched the ups and downs of his ministry, watched his pain and suffering, and watched him die. 
And it was Mary, who on the other side of the resurrection saw him live. Imagine the the up and the down of the emotions, the piercing of your own soul. Simeon was so right. As a matter of fact, I think that's why, I know that's why, in Christian art, Mary is represented and even called Mother of Sorrows because she understood sorrow that way. Of course, there was another character on this day, and that character was Anna. Anna was uh, an older woman. We don't know exactly how old. It appears maybe 84, but some people dispute whether or not 84 is an indication of her, name, or her age or an indication of some big gap between her husband passing away and how she had lived as a widow for X number of years following the seven years. We're not quite sure. The point is she was old. And she stayed at the temple day and night, it says, worshiping God and fasting and praying. It may have been that this woman, Anna, actually had a room in the temple court. Would not have been unlikely, but we don't know for sure. Whatever, it was a sign of true devotion that she was constantly there as a widow. And like Simeon, she saw the Messiah when other people did not. It appears according to the chronology that Simeon arrives first and blesses Jesus and Anna appears and sees what is happening and recognizes the Messiah as well. What's to me so interesting about Anna, and I'll play this out in a moment, is that her life was a life of worship. So when we look at these characters and we look at our life, and we consider the presence of the one and only of the Father, we recognize in John 1 that some people saw him, right? And got it. And John says, others did not. Now, for most of you who are here this morning, when you recognize Jesus, you recognize him for life. You have become a follower of Jesus Christ. And there's a certain recognition of Jesus as Son of God, devotion to Him. That sets you apart, according to John's Gospel, chapter 1, from those who don't recognize Him at all. On the other hand, even for those of us who follow Jesus Christ, I think you would agree that there are times and places and people who have a keen sense of his presence. In other words, in the midst of life, they have eyes of faith to see the invisible God at work. Like Simeon and Anna. My question is, how Can we have those eyes? How did they? How did the saints? I have three things. They're all going to be up there all at once. So here we go. The first way we recognize the invisible deity is through the practice of faith. I say the practice of faith instead of faith because it's very easy for us to make faith static, right? I believe. I get it, now I'm a Christian. 
But what I'm suggesting is to see the invisible deity around us on a given day. We have to be a part of the practicing of faith. Not just saying, I believe, but practicing the faith. And there's lots of levels to practicing the faith. The kind of faith I'm talking about here is absolutely linked with practice. An analogy. Um, Pearl played for us this morning. Everyone loves Pearl's piano playing, right? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. It's good to have you back, Pearl. But you know, Pearl's not the only musician in this congregation. Some of them you see get up here on a Sunday morning, play a violin, a cello, something else. And every one of them has not just learned to play the instrument. Like you learn to ride a bike and don't forget it. Those people are learning the instrument. They're practicing the instrument. They're doing it day after day after day until their fingers and other parts of their body that they use for the instrument itself takes a new step in the progress in practicing. My son was a drummer, and he said, Dad, it's amazing what happens to hand speed for drummers. You're going along, and you think, this is as good as it gets, and then all of a sudden, boom! He said, your hands speed up, and you go to stage two. It's because of all the practice that preceded it. That's the kind of practice I'm talking about when I say recognizing the invisible deity is the practice of faith. We do this, this practice of faith consistently, consistently, and in the practice, in the practice, our eyes are open. We don't just say we believe and ask why we can't see. We practice our faith. A lot of times when we talk about a career, we talk about getting a job. And that's all well and good, but there's at least a couple of careers where the word practice is linked to the career itself. You're, You're thinking of it already. Practicing medicine. Practicing dentistry. Practicing law. It's not a lawyer, a doctor, a dentist. It's a person who is practicing that particular discipline. And in the practice, they begin to learn more deeply how to solve the problem that's in front of them. They don't just get a degree and they have it. They practice. So the practice of faith is essential if we are to be able to identify the invisible deity in our lives. Sometimes, though, we associate deep faith with perfect understanding. Or we suggest that those people who really have deep faith, those people who are really practicing their faith, they have no doubt. They're so decisive about the voice of God. They're so decisive about what God is doing. They're so decisive about the activity of God in this present world. And it may appear to be true, but really it's not. Those people are practicing their faith. And they may have insights that you do not currently have, but in the ongoing practice of their faith, 
My friends, the darkness and the doubt is essential to the practice of their faith. We hold up Abraham, as does Islam and Judaism, as a high standard for a man of faith. And much of the time we think of Abraham and we think of the revelations he got from God and the way he walked with God. What we don't think of is all the days intervening between those epiphanies of faith where Abraham walked in silence, in darkness, and in doubt. Walking in silence, walking in darkness, walking in doubt is essential to faith. Doubt and faith are not opposite one another. Faith is the thing that helps us walk through doubt. That's what I mean by practicing the faith. The epiphany is a wonderful reward. The aha moment is great, but it's a moment. And then the practice starts all over again. The second thing that we need if we are to understand the activity of God and to see this invisible deity is we need to assume a position of humility, of absolute humility. You know, it's true of Jewish students, perhaps in Orthodox Judaism, I assume it's still the same way, but certainly then, a Jewish student who studied with a rabbi studied at his feet. He assumed a position of absolute humility. The rabbi would sit, and the student would sit at his feet. It, it was a posture of humility. It was this rabbi knows so much more than I do that at this point in my life, I have to bow down to his wisdom. Um, many of you here are part of the university. Um, you know, don't you, that years ago there was a practice very similar to that. When the professor entered the room, the entire class stood to honor his or her wisdom and knowledge. That would be really weird now if that happened at IU. Um, what, what, what would you think of that, Paul, if they all just stood up when you walked in the room? It'd make you feel uncomfortable, probably, right? It's just a different ethos. It's a different world that we live in. But the point of the standing when the professor walks in the room is to honor the person who knows so much more than you about the subject, and you're humbled in his or her presence. To understand and to see the invisible hand of God at work in our lives, we must be in a position of humility. So, look in front of you. I mean, it's right down on the floor there. What you don't see, right, is a thing called kneelers on the back of the chair. Do you? If you were in an Episcopal church, that chair has a kneeler attached to it. If you were in a Catholic church, the same thing is true. Why? Because when you pray, you're in a posture of humility. We kind of lost that tradition. When I was a kid growing up in a, a much different environment, we tried to retain the tradition without being 
hoity-toity high church, because we didn't want to be that, right? So when it was time to pray, a person would step up to the pulpit to lead the congregation in prayer. Not always, but routinely. Everyone would stand, turn around, and face kneeled into their chair. And we would pray with that posture. I, I think we lose something when we lose those liturgical touches. I'll never forget a, an elderly woman that was in the first congregation I ever pastored, First Baptist in New Haven. And she was talking to me about prayer. And she said to me, I was visiting her alone, and she said to me, uh, Pastor, um, I just want you to know that I pray every night before I go to bed. And I thought, well, that's good. That's, that's wonderful. I, and then she goes, she kind of paused, she said, but there's something else. I can't seem to do it unless I'm on my knees. She said, my arthritis is really bad. And it hurts. But I have to do it when I pray. It was a position of humility. If we're going to see the invisible deity all around us, our posture has to be a posture, a position of humility. I love a quote by Augustine that I've used before, but it bears repeating. You, Lord, who are so high above us, yet look with favor on the humble. You look on the proud too, but from far off. You come close only to men who are humble at heart. The proud cannot find you. The proud cannot find you. Even through, even though by dint of study, they have the skill to number the stars and the grains of the sand, to measure the tracks of constellation and trace the paths of the planet. They cannot know you. Not without humility. Isn't it interesting that the one we call the chief lawgiver, again, that tradition goes through Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, is Moses. And God said concerning Moses, by way of an analogy, I speak to him like I speak to no one else. I speak to him like I would speak to a friend, like a friend speaks to another friend face to face. You know what also is true of Moses? He was described as the meekest man on the earth. The most humble of anyone. It was to him that God spoke that way. So first, in order to see the invisible deity at work in our lives, we need the practice of faith. We need a position of humility, and we need the activity of worship. Both of these individuals were actively worshiping, right? They were in the temple. That was their life. They were present. Anna especially was there nonstop, it seems 24 hours a day, praying and fasting. One thing that's absolutely consistent with our faith is the notion of worship 
being essential to understanding God. We do worship God because He's worthy. We do worship God because it exalts us. But we also worship God in order to understand. Because you cannot understand Almighty God without worshiping Him. If you want to beat your competition, whatever that is, in a sport especially, in business, among other things, you know what you need to do? You need to understand your opponent, right? Inside and out. The playoffs in the NFL are on now. The Super Bowl's right around the corner. Do you have any idea how much time goes into a coaching staff dissecting the opponents and their schemes? By the time the game is ready, they want to know every move of the quarterback, every twitch of the head of anybody on that line that gives them a signal that something is happening. And the players want to know it too. Because to understand your opponent as well as they understand themselves, which is impossible, is the way to defeat the opponent. You understand that principle? Um, to catch a criminal, you have to understand the criminal. Uh, one of my favorite books I ever read, it came out in 1980, and now it's become a movie a few years back. Uh, the title of the book was Catch Me If You Can. I don't know if you ever read the book. Maybe you saw the movie. Catch Me If You Can is the true story of Frank Abagnale, who was a con artist at the highest level. Uh, Frank figured out a way to become things that he was not. Frank figured out a way to become a pilot for Pan Am Airlines. That was the big one back then. He had never flown a plane at all. He studied pilots. He spent day after day after day in the airport listening to the language, watching the movements, looking at the documents. And before it was all over, he forged a document that made him a pilot. And he walked into a Pan Am airline and loaded the plane in the jump seat of the pilot's. He never loaded onto the plane and became the pilot in the cockpit. But he wore his uniform, and they welcomed him in, and sometimes they gave him a seat behind the pilot. There's so many stories in this book that are fascinating, but just one. On one occasion, he was in the cockpit with the pilot and the co-pilot. And the pilot was talking pilot language to Frank. And finally, he turned to Frank, and he said, I really have to go to the bathroom. Why don't you take over the controls? He never flown a jet in his life. This was like a 747 jet over the ocean of the Atlantic. Frank had studied it so well, he didn't bat an eye. He said, well, thank you, George. Strapped himself into the pilot's seat and pushed the autopilot button. And flew to the pilot, got back. Frank also posed as a surgeon. I kid you not, a surgeon in Louisiana. It was in the operating rooms, making the money 
He forged a document, as I recall, from Harvard Medical School. This guy was a master. He knew those people that he studied so well, he could become one of them. Of course, before it's all over, Frank is captured. The FBI have him, and uh, he becomes uh, a great informant for the FBI because he knows the criminal as well as the criminal knows himself. Now, that's a pretty negative spin on what I'm about to say. (laughs) So let me make it a little more positive. If you've been married for a long time, I'm just going to speak in the first person. And you've loved that same woman all these years? You know her, don't you? You know almost everything about her. You know what bugs her. You know what her moods are when nobody else does. You have an intimate knowledge of her. Why? Because for however many years you've studied her. Right? I mean, if you're a good husband, it's a little over the top, but you've worshipped her. You've loved her so deeply. You've gotten inside her head. And you know who she is. Because you love her deeply and you've studied her consistently. My friends, we think of study, right, as an academic exercise. The study of God is essentially linked with the activity of worship. It's in worship of Almighty God through personal study of the Word and prayer and corporate study of the Word together and prayer and praise to God. It's there that we come to know God. It's there that we begin to see the activity of God. And as we study and love Him and pursue Him passionately in a love relationship with Him, we begin to see the invisible deity all over the place. The practice of faith, the position of humility, and the activity of worship. Those three things, at least, get us closer and closer to a recognition of the invisible presence of Almighty God. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, um, we are so grateful for your presence. And we must admit that we miss you all the time. You're present in our activity and the life of others. In the circumstances that we really do not like at all, in our pain and in our affliction, in our struggles with sin, in our struggles with other human beings, you're present, Lord. The amazing grace of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is is everywhere all around us. And frequently, we miss it. But Lord, we pray that uh, this year, you will help us to be aware of the presence of the one and only who is full of grace and truth. As the song says, Lord, open our eyes so that we may see you. Open our ears so that we can hear you. 
Allow us the grace that comes from practicing faith. Give us a position of humility before you. That your ways are higher than ours and we don't understand it and we admit it. And then help us never to neglect worship. Which is a loving, passionate pursuit of the heart of God. And along the way, Lord, give us just enough glimpses of your activity to take us from faith to faith until faith is no longer needed and we have sight. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.